too loud, I will blow people away. I know me. Yeah, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 16. Our text this morning will be verses 4 through 10, hopefully. <laughs> I certainly hope that we can uh, make it through all of it, but, you know, we're never in a real big hurry to, uh, to get through all the scripture as quickly as we can. So, <clears throat> excited to be with you this morning, feeling, uh, I don't know, maybe a little uh, buzzed out probably by the fog lifter coffee I drank earlier. Man, that stuff's caffeinated. And uh, I notice the days that I don't drink it, I, I can't do anything. And so, man, anyone else feel that way? That's not a good thing. That's called addiction. So, um, anyways, yeah, I got to have it. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 16, verses 4 to 10. Two weeks ago, we began to wrap up the intermissionary period between Paul's first and second missionary journeys. There was this sort of moment in between, you know, he ended his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas did, and they did some things in between. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Bruce preach last week so I could get a break. But the week before that, we started to sort of flesh out that and, and wrap up that, that period in between things there. You might recall, if you were with us, that how we read about Paul and Silas and how they spread the ecumenical letter, that letter that had been uh, constructed by the apostles and elders back in Jerusalem to basically encourage the Gentile believers and kind of put to death that whole heresy and lie of circumcision, salvation and stuff. So they kind of started to go out and, and spread that letter that had been written throughout the churches in, in Syria, Cilicia, and Galatia. You might recall how we talked about that stuff, how we focused on that. We also read about how uh, Silas and Paul, that's kind of the new missions team, they met a young chap by the name of Timothy in Lystra. Timothy was, just to kind of bring you back up to speed, Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman, uh, but he had a Greek father. He was a believer. He probably had been saved uh, during Paul's first trip through Lystra with Barnabas. Uh, in the previous year or so, uh, but he was a young guy. He was the son of a Jewish woman, uh, Jewish believing woman, that is, and he had a Greek dad. He was well-known and well-liked in his community, in several communities, the small towns, kind of like the series, Keys kind of thing going on there. The small towns knew who he was. Uh, he was a respected young man, a godly young man, and he desired to accompany Paul and Silas on their next journey, and Paul wanted him to go. Paul sort of checked him out and found out that he was a good young man, he, he loved the Lord Jesus, and that he was living out his faith to the best of his ability. But because Timothy had a Greek background, about half Greek, if you will, he was an uncircumcised guy. And uh, Paul knew that this particular thing would hinder the ministry of the gospel, particularly to the Jewish people who were revolted by non-circumcision. Uh, if you were an uncircumcised person, you could not enter a Jewish synagogue in these things. And you may recall from prior weeks and months that Paul's primary task, I think, was to preach the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul knowing that if he brought Timothy along as an uncircumcised Gentile, that he would lose uh, any credibility or opportunity with Jewish people, and that would go directly against his calling and commission. And so, uh, you know, fearing that, that this uncircumcised young man who was totally willing, totally faithful, totally ready, fearing that bringing him might disrupt, damage, or destroy his ministry to the Jewish people, Paul chose to circumcise Timothy. Again, not because circumcision is necessary, not because it is required, not because we have to be circumcised to be saved or any of those funky, crazy, heretical lies that have been going around during these times, but that Paul might remain faithful to his calling and be able to preach and proclaim the gospel in synagogues to Jews. And we also... Uh, well, I guess I pray before we move any forward because what I want to kind of do to start this message, if you, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I had to stop, you know, because we ran out of time. And so I didn't get to share with you and proclaim the rest of the sermon. And so I've got some things that I need to go back through and make you aware of and teach you. And so we're going to be touching on things. I had like two pages left, which was cool because this time around it was less study. I just had to kind of reformat it. 
And, uh, but anyway, so we've got to kind of go back to where we were. We had some end thoughts, because you have to end a sermon with some thoughts and kind of implore you to do some things. But uh, we're going to kind of revisit that stuff. But I'd like to pray before we proceed. Amen? That's it. He just prayed. I just did it right there. He just amened it. He closed it. We can't go any further. Amen. Father, Lord, we, uh, we lift up this time to you, Lord, and we, we've prayed probably five times in this service. I, I, I think we should have prayed ten times. Uh, that's one of the things that's absent in, in church services. Now you get a prayer up front, maybe one on the back end and, and that, and we should be constantly praying. This is a time of prayer. It's a time of teaching. It's a time of singing. And, and so we want to acknowledge you again in this time, Lord. Uh, we want to acknowledge our, our lack of uh, ability to comprehend and understand in these sorts of things. We are plagued by flesh that kind of prohibits us at times from understanding the truth and from applying it and living it out. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your strength. We ask for illumination, for guidance. And, Lord, as the people of God, it should be our most sincere desire to want to obey you and to live out what we hear from your word, what you command from us and, and desire from us and request of us. And so help us to do that this morning, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me as a preacher a tender heart, not typically known as a tender-hearted preacher, uh, not really like Barnabas, um, and sometimes that's not a good thing. And, uh, and Lord, I just want to confess to you now that I, I know as I was writing this sermon, even from a couple of weeks ago and bringing it over into this week, uh, this sermon was written to me first, primarily, that this is, it's really my journey and, and my walk and the things that you've been saying to me. And so that everyone in this room needs to know that, that their pastor is not above these things. He's not beyond these things. He at times is unfaithful and, and needs your instruction. And so I, I pray that you'd humble me now, Lord. And, uh, and I pray that, Lord, you would love your people through this time. That you would admonish them, that you would lift them up, that you would train them, teach them, edify them. And you know what? Sometimes, Lord, we, we need a, a, a rebuke. We need, we need to be corrected. I know that is the case with me so often. And so, Lord, speak to us during this time. Help us. And may we all know that we can achieve nothing and do nothing apart from your good grace. And, uh, and so we humbly submit ourselves to you now, and we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When we examine the text, when we look at like 16 verses 1 to 3 and in our particular passage, and I ended with this thought a couple of weeks ago, we notice that, you know, here's Paul and he's, and he's in front of Timothy. This guy's probably a teenager, a young lad, and, and you know, and, and, and here he is faced with this opportunity to go out with Paul. And what a grand, can you imagine being invited to go along a mission journey with Paul. That would be phenomenal. I can't wait to meet the guy, hopefully, uh, when I uh, go to be with the Lord. But uh, here's this grand opportunity for this young man, and there's kind of a stipulation to it. Circumcision. And, and you know, one of the things that we notice in the text is that Timothy in no way, shape, or form protested Paul's action and request of him. You know, when, when Paul said, you know, you're, you're, you're half Gentile, I don't hold that against you, but, you know, we're going to go out and do some, some ministry to Jewish people, and it's going to be probably nearly impossible for us to, to do what the Lord would desire as you are in your current state. And so, might I suggest, and, and you know, we don't see anything in the text that says, you know, well, you know, I, 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 you know he wasn't like kind of a half-hearted guy or anything like that. There's nothing in there. There's no resistance. There's no protest or anything. It just simply says Paul took him and circumcised him. So we see that there was no resistance from Timothy whatsoever. And I know for a fact if there had been, I, I'm pretty sure that Luke would have recorded it for us because we might have been able to learn some kind of a lesson through that. Paul isn't kind of, the, or Luke isn't the kind of historian that really left things out. He put a lot of nuance and detail and stuff into his record. And so we, we didn't see any of that. We didn't see Timothy Bach, we didn't see him back out, we didn't see him change his mind, we didn't see him go home, we didn't see him delay, we didn't see him meander, we didn't see him go off and we didn't see him say what we say so often when we're presented with a, with a potential opportunity, let me go home and pray about it, right, which is usually code for no, right, uh, right, I, I, I'm guilty, you know, somebody asked something on me, well let me pray about that, that's basically my way of saying no, right. And uh, we didn't see any of that in the text. Uh, what we saw was immediate obedience, immediate obedience. 
We saw an immediate response to have it done. And with that being said, I'd like to begin this morning with a, with a question, I suppose. How often do we protest in our hearts, rationalize our position, current position, or even turn tail and run when the Lord says, I want you to do this, or I want you to do that? And you think about it for a moment, you know, the first inclination of our minds and hearts is to say, I immediately obey him in all things. That would be the second biggest lie in the universe, the first one being, ye shall be as gods, right? Oh, I obey him whenever he says to do, if he says go, I go. If he says sit, I sit. If he says speak this to that person, speak this. And we're just so quick, aren't we? How often do we protest when God requires something? How quickly do we rationalize? Well, he's asking me to do this, but I've been doing this, so that should take care of that. And how quickly do people, and I think it's very often, just sort of turn tail and run? He wants this of me. Bam, you don't see that person in church for about a month. What were you doing? I was busy. Doing what? I was busy. It is very common for Christians to listen to a preacher proclaim God's word or read the Bible and, and hear or see these examples, the example of Timothy, his willingness, Paul, sacrifice, all these examples. It's very common for us to listen to a preacher proclaim these things, for us to read our Bible and to look at them and see them, and then for us to say to ourselves, there is no way that God would ever call me to be like Timothy. There's no way that he would require of me what he required of Silas or Paul. These brothers, and they were my brothers, they were unique and special around during a particular time where it required certain things and a certain attitude and disposition. Not to mention that I'm already doing my part. I attend church regularly. I, I read my Bible twice a week. I put a few bucks in the offering box here and there and so on and so forth. And what happens is rather than seeking to become like the saints in Scripture, we say to ourselves, we live in a different day, time, and place. What was required of them is not required of me today. We try to explain away the word of God, all in an effort to do what? To maintain our comfort, to maintain our ease of life, to maintain our lifestyle. Pastor, author, speaker, and there's 50 other things a man could add to his resume, Francis Chan recently called out people who do this, and in so many ways he called me out when I read this. He said, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. You go to any Christian bookstore today, you look on Amazon, look in the Christian titles, and you will find 52 dozen books entitled Radical, Incredible Faith, Beyond Reality Faith, the example of Paul, all these things, this whole notion of radical. And what he says is that complacent, lukewarm style Christians, and there are some, they tend to look at these examples and say, man, that's a radical example. And then they say to themselves, that radical example wouldn't be required of me at all. It was only required of so-and-so. Chan basically said, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Chan refers to those who marvel at the service of the saints in Scripture. He calls those who marvel at these examples of Timothy and the willingness in these things. And those who at the same time marvel at these examples, they rationalize their own minimalism or inactivity. He calls them lukewarm. This is, a not, this is a terrible, this is not a good, this is not a positive moniker. 
This is not a good title to bear, being lukewarm. Lukewarm people are highly displeasing. Saying this to myself and to you, they are highly displeasing to the Lord. Jesus said this in Revelation 3, 15 to 16. He said, I know your deeds. You're familiar with this passage where he instructed the churches throughout Macedonia and these other places. He gave these encouragements and warnings to these churches. That's where we're at here in the context. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is what he says of lukewarm people. He gave this instruction to a church that's filled with Christians. Here's how I interpret Jesus' words. And I know I have a hard edge, so I tend to go to extremes. But I have to be that way with myself because I am as slippery as a serpent at times. I find ways to just navigate right through God's word while saying, I'm exalting you, you know, and I am really avoiding the truth. I have taught my, I've trained myself to do this. Have you? Oh, I'm good at it. I'm a pro. I'd be making six figures if we got paid to do this. Some do. They're called pastors in big churches. Not all big churches, but some of them. I don't even know why I said that. Some of the stuff that comes in isn't of the Lord, so just be careful. This, however, is. Here's how I interpret Jesus' words. I have no use of churchmen who prefer cruise control, who prefer to sit on the fence, or who prefer to do and give as little as possible. I don't have use for these types of people. I spit them out of my mouth. They're not cool water, they're not refreshing, and they're not warm enough to make tea with. They're just kind of in between and they're kind of annoying. They're not good on my palate. Lukewarm people look at the scriptures and think of those who sacrificed and, and served and gave faithfully, these examples, Timothy, Paul, Silas, and beyond, they think of them as radical. The scriptures, however, never refer to faithful servants as radical. They are just faithful servants. Huge emphasis on faithful. They're just Christians. They're just believers. They're just Brothers, they're just sisters, they're just followers, they're just disciples, they're just elders, they're just apostles, and so on and so forth. They are believers, that's it. They're not radical. Chan's point, and more importantly, the scripture's point, is that every believer... Every believer is called to live a life of faithful service and giving. There is nothing radical about this. It's completely normal. To be lukewarm, however, is to be disobedient. It is to be complacent. It is to be apathetic towards the command of the Lord and his mission. Lukewarm is code for sin. To be lukewarm is to live in sin. And of course, this is all multiplied when you live in a nation that promotes ultimate personal happiness. And so what really matters here is that you're happy, absolutely not the mission of God, not generosity towards others and these sorts of things. And so it's all multiplied here in the good old United States. It is sinful to be lukewarm. 
And I'd like to make you aware of, of something else. There is actually a progression in the life of the believer in terms of service and giving. As a believer matures in his or her faith, he or she will increase their giving. As they mature, and I would say they would increase in their service, as they mature, they will give more of their time, they will give more of their talent, and they will give more of their treasure to the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. That is the normal, healthy, biblical progression. We don't stay in one place, if you will. God takes us from spiritual infant, infancy, goo goo gaga, fresh in the faith, throwing away all your DVDs and CDs. That was me. He takes us from spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence. That's usually not a positive term, especially if you have teenagers under your roof. I hate the teenage years. He takes us from infancy, spiritual infancy, to adolescence, to spiritual adulthood, and then ultimately to glory. That's, that's the goal. That's, at the end of the day, that's what we're seeking after. And as we move through the stages of maturation, our service and giving should gradually increase. And you must understand that faithfulness in service and giving is expected at every Stage. We cannot say to ourselves, I'm a spiritual infant, I was just born again, therefore I don't have to give or serve. We cannot say to ourselves as a spiritual adult, you've been in the faith for a while, you're mature in your faith to some degree, and we cannot say it's okay for me to still give and serve at the same level that an infant would. You see, there's a progression. And we must understand that there is no stage where faithfulness in serving and giving is not expected. There is not a stage where it's like, okay, you're at that stage in your life, you're free and clear. We don't see that anywhere in the gospel. We don't see that anywhere in the word. As spiritual infants, new in the faith, we are called to serve faithfully and give joyfully in appropriation to our faith. As spiritual adolescents, we are called to serve faithfully and give joyfully in appropriation to our faith. As spiritual adults, we are called to serve faithfully and give joyfully in appropriation to our faith. You get the point. Simply put, we are to serve and give at every level and our service and giving should increase with every level of maturity. And I'd like to also submit that there is no such thing as Christian retirement. You might be a Christian who works 32 years at Gallo and you retire, but guess what? You're not off duty with the Lord. That isn't the time where you go play golf and spend all your time and leisure and use your money for the finest wines that Gallo has to offer. You probably would never buy Gallo wine again after working there. You know what I'm saying? This isn't your time to just celebrate you and just take a break. There's no such thing as Christian retirement in terms of I don't have to serve God anymore or give or do these sorts of things. I don't have to work, if you will. It doesn't exist. We are to serve faithfully and give generously until we die. Period. Many Christians have come to believe that Jesus was speaking literally in Matthew 25, 23, that he, the master of the kingdom of heaven, will greet every Christian and all Christians as they enter into heaven with the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though this is a parable, it's a story, it's an example, it, it might be true. Jesus said this is what heaven is like. But Christians also tend to believe that the only prerequisite for being greeted this way is being Christian. Every Christian that walks through the pearly gates, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your Father's glory. That's the default. Salutation, if you will. They think that every Christian will hear these words. Guess what? If it is true that Jesus will greet his 
children, brothers, people in this way, it is not true that everyone will be greeted this way. If he does it at all, it wouldn't be for everyone, that's for sure. Why? Because Matthew 25, 23 says, well done, good and faithful servant. Only those who are good and faithful servants will hear those words. And the sad fact is there are plenty of Christians in the church that are neither good nor faithful in terms of service. Being a good and faithful servant, if this is true, and this is how Jesus greets, that is what is requisite. Being a good steward of what the Lord has entrusted to your hands. And as I said, sadly, not every Christian is a good and faithful steward. Some spend their lives being served. I've been watching Downton Abbey. I love it. You talk about servants in that show, man, I tell you. These people, I mean, these people, it's like they eat at dues every night, this family, this wealthy English family. They've got all these servants down there that, that cater to them and, and help them. I was going to say something that would have sounded weird. Take off their cufflinks. I'll leave it at that. I mean, they help them with everything, their hair and their, you know, their, 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 everything, the food. I mean, it's like the food is unbelievable. Anyone watch the show? There's some other saved people in here. That's good. <laughs> it's a great show, right? You just ever marveled at the service that these people get? Well, guess what? Some Christians are like the Granthams. I just want to be served. I just, I just, I want to come and I, and I want the church to provide for my needs and I want the pastor to provide for my spiritual needs in, in his preaching and I want that music ministry to minister to me and I, and I want that kids ministry to take care of my little, my little rascals and I, and I just come and I'm in this perpetual cycle of just doing this and doing this and I just keep taking and taking and taking because I think that I'm a Crowley or a Grantham. Some spend their lives being served. Some spend their lives, and I know this sounds harsh, and I wrestled through a season of this myself, so I know what it's like. Some spend their lives sponging and absorbing the church's energy, time, and resources. According to research, I don't know how accurate it is. This stat's been around for a while. But according to research, about 80% of church folks do that. They do nothing but take and take and take. This is absolutely tragic. Those who take Matthew 25, 23, literally, that every Christian will be greeted, or whatever, that any Christian would be greeted in such a way, well done, good and faithful servant, should also take the rest of the passage literally. <laughs> and you heard it read earlier. Those who do not steward well, who are not generous, it doesn't go well for them. Well, I, I really like that 2523, man. That really floats my boat. What about the rest of the passage? There's an entire paragraph underneath it that warns against those who are lukewarm. What about that? Well, you know, cut and paste, baby. We live in a cut and paste Christian culture. You better take the whole thing literally. I really believe we ought to heed Jesus' warning in Matthew 25 and in Revelation 3. Do any of us want to be classified with the Laodiceans as lukewarm and then spit from the mouth of Jesus Christ? Is that what we desire as Christians? I think not. How could a true Christian, emphasis on true, be okay or content with that, with being lukewarm? Do we not desire for the Lord to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? I can tell you what, I, I, I hope that's what he says to me, if he indeed says that to good and faithful servants. I, I would certainly hope that I would be found to be a good and faithful servant. I'm not a perfect servant, but I, I most certainly want to be a good steward of what the Lord has given to me and entrusted to me, more particularly entrusted with the gospel. Let me encourage you for a moment. If you are currently serving with your time and talent, 
Thank you for obeying Christ. Continue to do so zealously with joy. And I would also encourage you to evaluate your faith and pray about increasing your service. Because remember, there is a progression. We don't stay in one place. It doesn't mean, well, that last week I served 22 hours, the next week I served 23, and the next week don't start doing that to yourself. Just think in terms of how am I serving, where am I investing my time and talent, and guess what? A portion of it should be spent here at this church. But not always. There's other ways to serve out in the community. If you are serving, I thank you on behalf of Christ. Continue to do so zealously with joy. Evaluate yourself. If you are currently giving a portion of your treasure, thank you for obeying Christ. Continue to do so. Continue to be generous. Continue to give with joy. And I would also encourage you to evaluate. We just had to talk about this in our elder meeting the other day. I've fallen under just massive conviction. You know, we've been here for two years and I've basically given the same amount for two years. And guess what? I'm not the same Christian I was two years ago. My giving should line up with my increasing level of maturity in the Lord. And so I prayed about, you know, committing myself to giving more, more of my time, talent, and treasure. That is the progress. I need to be obedient first, I'd say. But I'd say thank you if you're giving a portion of your treasure. Notice how I don't talk about percentages because the key to giving is joy. What can you give joyfully? It's not 10%, 20%, 30%. For Paul Rogers, it's 75%. Just kidding. And the man, man probably gives it too. If you are not serving with your time and talent, and I'll say this with all the love in my heart because I've been in your shoes, I would say repent and obey the Lord. It's not optional, friends. I would say that also we would love to get you plugged into a ministry where you can serve. You can talk with me or the elders after the service. I'd love to, to integrate you in so that you could use your time and talent to serve the body of Christ. And I, I tell you what, you will be rewarded for that with just joy. If you are not giving a portion of your treasure, I would say the same thing. Repent and obey the Lord. Evaluate your checkbook and adjust your spending so that you can give sacrificially. You know, for us to be able to give, really, the heart of God wants it to be sacrificial. And so the best way to give is to look at what you spend and cut something out. We eat out six times a week. Cut it back to five. And then give that as a gift to the Lord. Do, do something. Evaluate where you spend. If you find that most of your money, 99%, 100% of it's spent on you, there is an issue. There is a problem. I would say simply and, and as lovingly as I can, repent and obey the Lord. Evaluate your checkbook and adjust your spending so that you can give sacrificially. Cut something out and then give joyfully. And I'll tell you this, man, the church will benefit greatly from your obedience. And you know what, darn it? So will you. So will you. I would say, too, let us together model Timothy's attitude and willingness to give himself to the mission of Christ. He offered himself freely without hesitation. He did not protest, and we should do the same. We should heed God's instruction today in terms of what we've talked about. Don't play the game anymore. Don't sit there and say, those are those people, they have to do it, and I don't. Pastor Phil's held to a different level. Don't say this to yourself. Don't say, I do a little bit here and there. Don't say that. Don't rationalize. Don't find a way out. Don't select a scapegoat and send it into the desert. Don't do it. Just obey him. That's what's required. Let's be like Timothy. Let's be like Silas. Let's be like Paul. Why don't we aim to be like our Lord and Master who gave it all? Jesus Christ. And now, as I was studying, as we transition to the next section, as I was studying, I began to ponder if there was someone there who had a bit of a hard time with Paul's request and Timothy's decision. Timothy didn't protest. I'll go. But I began to think about Timothy's mother, Eunice. 
How did she feel about this? She was a committed believer. She may have been exuberantly happy and joyful. My son is going with Paul and Silas to spread the gospel and plant churches. Hooray! Let's consider a few facts before we jump to that conclusion. One day, while Paul was preaching the gospel in Eunice's hometown of Lystra, angry Jews grabbed him and dragged him outside the city walls and then proceeded to stone him to death. Acts 14.20 tells us that the disciples of Lystra, or Lystra, they gathered around Paul to give him aid. We have no reason to believe that Eunice was not one of them. The disciples of Lystra surrounded him, and there was probably just a handful at this point. He had just started preaching in that town. If she was not one of the disciples that circled him, she would have quickly heard about what happened to the evangelist who led her to the Lord. So either way, Eunice would have been made aware of how risky and dangerous the gospel ministry could be. In her mind, sending her son with Paul and Silas may have been similar to me or to sending him to his death to some degree. Sending Timothy off into the blue yonder, we will learn that it was Macedonia. Sending Timothy to these areas and these regions during this particular time would be similar to me sending my 15-year-old son Colin to Iran. If Colin came to me and said, Dad, I, I believe the Lord wants me to go to Iran with Bruce and Colby to preach the gospel, the first thing I'd do is get him blood tested to see if he's been smoking something. <laughs> Something's off. They, they kill and imprison Christians in Iran, which is exactly what they did during these days. I would say, well, son, you know what? I'm going to pray about that. Remember, that's my default for no. And then I would immediately call a meeting with the two goombas who invited him on the trip. I thought you were on my team. What the heck are you guys doing? I love you, but I don't. I would say to my son, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? That place is not friendly to Christians. And as your daddy, I want you to go to safe places. Let us also consider how dangerous travel was then. The ancient thoroughfares were laden with murderous bandits, thieves, deadly animals, deadly serpents. They had a couple of different vipers over there. But bitchy, you'd be, you know, wouldn't snake salvation. You'd be with the Lord immediately. Let us also consider the landscape which featured treacherous mountain passes, cliffs, and lowland or low-level flash floods, kind of like Arizona. You've heard how the street to your house turns into a river ran through it. And you see the videos of the guy that's in six-inch water, but as soon as his foot touches it, he goes, and he flies down the road, and the cop's got a chain around. You watch that? Watch that stuff. This was very similar. You could be walking through a valley, and then in a nanosecond, swept away. The, now let's also consider the weather. The Macedonian, which is where they were going to be headed to, as we will learn, is, was then, and is characterized by Mediterranean climate and continental climate. There's kind of a clashing of two types of climates that happen in this region because of its position, which makes weather highly variable, unpredictable, and often dangerous to those who are caught unprepared. Temperatures could reach 104 degrees Fahrenheit and drop to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be similar to how it is in Colorado. You get 29 seasons in a day there. I know there's four, but still, there's added there. I mean, the, the mountain passes create the most insane weather. It could be 90 degrees out and then you're getting blasted by golf ball hail. It's just insanity. 
And this was an, a region where these things were indicative and still are today. The weather is unpredictable. The landscape is rough. The roads are dangerous. The gospel is dangerous. Look at what happened to Paul. And now let's just do all the math. Timothy was a young man, probably still under his mother's care, right? The gospel incites anger and rage and violence amongst many who hear it. Paul was a marked man and target. Jews traveled all over from Iconium and stuff to get to him. Travel was dangerous. The landscape was treacherous. The weather was extreme, unpredictable, and potentially dangerous. Do you think it's possible that Eunice may have struggled a little bit with the idea of her son going on this trip? If she didn't, she is a sociopath. Oh, just take him, go! No. Now, I don't think that that was her initial response. Put yourself in her shoes. Do you have a young son or daughter that you would just willingly offer up to this kind of trip? Would you send that child into Iran tomorrow? How would you feel? What would you do, would you punch Paul in the nose for suggesting it and for planting the seed? You dummy! Would you put your son on house arrest so you could watch his every move? What are you doing hanging out the window? Get back in here. Would you graciously decline Paul's request? Probably not a good idea for my son today. Or would you entrust your son to the Lord's care and send him out as a witness for Christ? I would hope that we would all choose the last option. Our children, simply put, do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. They are his. And guess what our task is as parents? you have children, it is to prepare them for the world and the ministry of the gospel, if you're a believing parent. As Solomon put it, children are like arrows in a quiver. Blessed is the man whose quiver is filled with them. You think about the purpose of an arrow with me for a moment. What does an arrow do? What do we use it for? It is designed to be shot from a bow or contraption at a target or enemy, or maybe deer so you can eat. Our children are like arrows. We are to shape them and make them straight through prayer and the word of God. We are to sharpen them through godly instruction. And we are to fire them into the world where they will strike blows upon the devil and all that is unholy and unrighteous. That is what we are to do. Not an easy thing. You've got to think about who we are and our children are. We are, our children are, weapons in the hands of God. Timothy's mother, Eunice, obviously understood this. After Paul prepared Timothy for the ministry by circumcising him, she fired Timothy into the world. As an arrow, go with them. Look at verses 4 and 5. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went through the cities and it went through the cities and they delivered the ecumenical letter to the churches that had been previously planted. They went out and did exactly what the council wanted them to do, distribute the letter, and Timothy is with them. And what did the letter do as these three men went out and faithfully did their duty and ministry? The letter strengthened the believers just as it had done in the churches throughout Syria and Cilicia. It says they were strengthened in the faith. That's those whom heard the letter read. The letter, we might say, built up their faith. Their faith was made strong. And then Luke wrapped up this charming, wonderful, convicting little narrative in typical fashion 
This is the fifth time in Acts where he reminded his readers of the powerful and persistent work of God through the gospel. This was the result of God's grace being applied to lost sinners through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's right there at the end of verse 5. And they increased in numbers daily. When I read this, I wondered how many Christians would there have been in the world at this point? If people were being saved each day, as Acts says over and over, surely the church may have been or might have been fairly large by now, right? That's what we would be led to believe. I did a little research on this, and here's what I discovered. At this point in the biblical narrative, in the historical narrative, the year is approximately 51 A.D. The church was about 18 years old from the day of Pentecost. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, which was published in 1982, by the year 100 A.D., there were an estimated 1 million Christians in the Roman Empire. In 67 years, the church grew from 620 believers. Remember the 120 up in the upper room and the 500 Jesus revealed himself to? 620. In 67 years, it went from 620 believers. Man, that's no way to start a religion, right? It went from, in 67 years, from 620 to 1 million. In the Roman Empire alone, this is incredible. God added to their number daily, daily, daily. You do the math 50, 60 years later. Look at where we're at. It's marvelous. These men were faithful and went out and exercised their duty. Timothy gave himself over to the ministry of gospel. Paul, Silas, these men did that. Look at how God worked. Let's look at 6 and 7. This is where the passage gets really interesting. As if it weren't already. Maybe to you it hasn't been. To me it's been fascinating. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia, funny word, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What the heck? And when they had come up to, that's pronounced Mysia, Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What? After visiting the churches which had been previously planted, bringing that letter out, Reading it to them and building up these churches, Paul, Silas, and Timothy made plans to travel west and preach the word in Asia. They're attempting to engage the second missionary journey. Paul knew there were thriving communities of Jews in many of the Asian cities. His desire at this point may have been to evangelize places like Ephesus, Laodiceus, Hierapolis, Colossae, Tripolis, Antioch on the meander, not the other Antioch, Nyssa, Trales, Magnesia, Prien, Miletus, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamon, and Smyrna. Now, these names, these come up in, in the scriptures all the time later on. Churches were actually planted in many of these cities later on, but at this point, the Holy Spirit prevented them from pressing into these cities. Luke doesn't tell us why or how the Spirit prevented them. It could be because people in Ephesus, Sardis, and Pergamon were hostile towards those who taught new ideas, towards you know, philosophers that came with new philosophies, or towards those who taught new religions, which is what they would have seen the gospel as. Ephesus was steeped in pagan worship. Artemis, the mythological goddess of fertility, was the reigning false deity of the city. Ephesus had constructed a large temple in her honor, the Ephesians had. The temple of Artemis was so massive and ornate, it was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesians were generally close-minded and hostile towards outsiders and their ideas. And so were the people in Sardis and Pergamon. And when the Spirit brought this plan to an end, it could be because of the hostility, potential hostility, God didn't want to jeopardize what was going on. When the Spirit brought this particular plan to go into Asia to an end, the team traveled through up to the region or through the region of Phrygia, which was situated on both sides of the Sultan Dag Mountains. 
near the western border of Galatia. From there they traveled far west to Mysia, which was above Ephesus and the other cities I mentioned. Those were in the lower region of Asia. From Mysia they attempted to travel northeast to Bithynia, which was situated on the southern part of the Baltic Sea. But this move was also blocked by the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, verse 7 is the only verse or passage in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. This is very interesting. Luke refers to the Holy Spirit in this way because he, he has and holds a very high Christological view. Christological is essentially two parts. It's Christ and theology. Theology means the study of God. When we merge Christ and theology, we get the study of Christ or Christology. Christology or Christological basically means the study or understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The proper biblical Christology is that Christ is both God and man or the God-man. And now there are other facets to this. There's much more to Christology. But the proper Christology, one that had been wrestled with in these days after hearing the gospel and all the way up into the 700s and beyond and even today, the proper Christology is that Christ is both fully God and fully man, not part and part, not two different people. This doctrine is the most attacked of all the Christian doctrines. The first six ecumenical council meetings, excluding the one that we studied in Acts 15 because it's not really qualified to be called that even though I did, we're held for the purpose of defending biblical Christology. Heretics have argued that Christ was either not fully human or not fully God. They attack and have attacked throughout the centuries the imminence of Christ, which represents his closeness and relationship to the world, and his transcendence, which represents his holiness and being beyond all things. The church responded to these heresies with the Nicene Creed, which is a doctrinal statement about the biblical nature of Christ. The document affirms the proper biblical Christology, which is, again, Christ as fully God and Christ as fully man. And guess what? The Nicene Creed is in use today. Luke, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, defended the imminence of Christ, proper Christology, by showing how Christ was involved in the mission and affairs of his church. Hence why he said the spirit of Jesus did not allow him. Is it coming into full picture now? Now let's look at verse 8 and 9. So passing by... Uh, I can't even pronounce it. Missia. I hate it. These words, they're not normal to us. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Trous. And it's probably not even saying that right. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. This is fascinating. And a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Isn't this interesting? After having, and I thought about this, after having your ministry, your ministry plans basically dashed to pieces twice, one might become a little dismayed and a little disenfranchised, right? Think of this. Paul attempted, thinking that he was led by the Lord, to go into two different districts to proclaim the gospel, but both attempts were blocked. How quickly might one become disenfranchised after that? Well, I tried to do this. That door slammed in my face. I tried to do that. That door slammed in my face. I think I'm going to go home where it's warm and comfy, endless falafel. He or she, if you suffer this and have been through these things, might feel like throwing in the towel and giving up and maybe going back home. Paul, Silas, and Timothy could not get a playoff because they had been sacked two times in a row by the Holy Spirit. Their team was beginning to look a little like the Broncos several weeks ago. Just couldn't get it together. Don't amen that. My wife will kill you. <laughs> Valerie celebrating the Lord's goodness to her right now because she's a Seahawks fan. Have you ever had your plans sacked? Look at the parallel to us. Have you ever had your plans sacked? 
Have you ever had your ministry sacked? Guess what? It's not fun. If Paul, Silas, and Timothy had given up, they would have traveled south to Pamphylia and then sailed from there to Syrian Antioch, their home base, right? That's what would have happened if they would have just said, that's it. Two times in a row, we're done. God doesn't want us to go out on this second journey. It's plain to see. But that's not what they did. Instead, they went to Trous, which was a port city in Mysia. What were their intentions after being sacked twice at the one-yard line? Why did they go to the port city of Trous? Well, it's plain to see in the text that Paul had devised a new plan. This time, he planned to leave Asia and sail for Macedonia, which was southeast Europe. But before chartering a boat, something really amazing happened, and we see it in the text. Luke tells us that Paul had a nighttime vision. In the vision, Paul saw a man from Macedonia standing before him and calling out to him. The man was urging Paul in this vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. The words of the man are focused on the imperative, help us. The Greek verb denotes to render assistance to someone in need. Its general meaning fits the vision, this or particular general meaning, uh, meaning fits the vision of a man who does not know the gospel, who does not perceive how Paul might be able to aid them or help them. Ultimately, Paul can only help if he crosses over into Macedonia. It was a shallow vision. There wasn't a lot of detail in it. The vision, however, was the Holy Spirit's way of confirming Paul's decision to take his team into Macedonia. That's why he traveled to Trous to take a boat to go across. The vision confirmed that the Spirit of Jesus was not going to sack Paul's new venture and mission. The vision was a total confirmation and no doubt brought relief and joy to the hearts of each Team member. Now look at our last verse, verse 10, and we're wrapping it up. Word of God says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Fantastic. Right after the vision, and keep in mind that it was at night, Paul gathered his team together to discuss the vision. I don't think you go back to sleep after that. If you do, you, you're, you're an amazing sleeper. I, 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 a cricket goes off and I'm up. My wife's worse. It's hard for her to sleep at times. He has this vision in the middle of the night. And what does he do? He goes over and starts nudging people. Get up. I got to tell you about what I just saw. And he convened with them. And the consensus was that it was God's will for the team to sail to Macedonia, southeast Europe, if you will, to help the people. How? By preaching the gospel. That is the greatest help that anyone would ever need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a consensus. That's of the Lord. Let's do, we sense that we should go there and do it, although we'd been blocked twice. But now that you've received this vision, there's no doubt. God has confirmed what he had already put in our hearts. And now we know for sure. We might say that the men were completely unified and ready to go. I'm not sure if you picked up on this or not. Take notice of the word we in the middle of verse 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy added another teammate to their team. Verse 10 is the beginning of the we passages in Acts. Luke, the writer of Acts, has now joined the team. He will be with them. Like Timothy, he was to be Paul's faithful friend and companion for the rest of the Apostle Paul's life. Isn't that amazing, that little detail? We. Luke's with them now. Our historian is now with the team. He is a missionary on this journey. Let's wrap it up. In closing, what might we take away from this sermon and apply to our lives? We have 
covered several important themes. Service and giving. The question to you is, are you faithful or are you lukewarm? That's for you to ponder and to sort out between you and the Lord Jesus. And his expectation is that you would submit to his will and align yourself with his will. And his promise to you, anytime we follow the will of, of Christ, of God, is, is abundant, full joy. Another theme, children as arrows. Are you, if you are still in a raising your children, they're under your care, tutelage, parenting, are you raising your kids to be weapons in the hands of God, arrows? This is not an easy task. Making disciples is hard work. We begin with our children making disciples in them. And God is so gracious to us because we don't do this perfectly. I'll admit that right off the bat. Made a lot of mistakes. After studying this, I'm, I'm recommitting myself to thinking through that and praying through that. And, and for me, it'll be in watching some of the things I say and do around my kids. Instructing them to submit themselves to the Lord, to know that they are on mission for Christ and these sorts of things. Children as arrows. How about perseverance in life and ministry? Have you had your plans and or ministry sacked by the Holy Spirit? Take joy. He ain't finished with you. You'd almost think that Paul would have given up the first time they were sacked. But he attempted to go somewhere else and that didn't work out. And then he attempted to go somewhere else. Do you see the commitment to be faithful, to try new things, to keep moving? That is what you are to do in life and in service to the Lord. He may have brought something to close for you, and it may have even been painful, but know that he hasn't given up on you and know that it was ultimately his will to do so. And he has your best in mind, even though that's a difficult thing to believe and swallow at times. How about Christology? What do you believe about Christ? Luke had a high Christology. He was the God-man. He's the Savior. He is all these things. What do you believe about Christ? What is your Christology this morning? Is he your Lord and Savior? Is he God incarnate? And lastly... Christ has commissioned us as missionaries. How are you living on mission today? How are you living? If you are in Christ, you are a missionary. You are like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and you have been called to Modestonia. I want you to ponder these themes and, and to take whichever one fits your life and, 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 and to ponder these things before you take the elements, before you take the blood, the juice, and the bread. I want you to ponder these things. Find where maybe you're at odds with the Lord in these things. And if you're not at odds and you've been faithful, rejoice with him. Lord Jesus, we lift up this time to you, Lord, and, and we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us, that you would meet with us. And I suspect that conviction is probably heavy in this room as it is. I know it was for me the last couple of weeks that I've been thinking through these things. And, and I rejoice in your gentle, loving instruction. And I pray that for these folks here too, Lord. Search their hearts. Reveal to them what they need to change and how they might better align themselves or maybe even for the first time in a long time or first time ever, align themselves with your will. It is not a characteristic for a, a true 
believer to be lukewarm. It's a, something that can plague us at times, but our disposition is as we learned in family time, and that is what true faith is, to offer it all up, to have it all ready for your great call, for whatever it is that you would move us into next, to have ourselves and our resources ready at your disposal. You belong, it, it all belongs to you, our kids and everything else. It's on loan. How might we glorify you in all that we are and who we are and all that we have? Speak to each person, Lord. Meet them right where they're at. And may they know that the bread and the juice represent the greatest divine sovereign act of freedom ever offered or given to any person. The death of Jesus Christ, the true and only liberator of men. When we take those elements, we are remembering his death. And we are remembering that he is going to return and set all things right. And how often I ask for that to be tonight or tomorrow. But then I think of all the countless folks who have yet to come to know you. May we celebrate in this time. May we confess our sin. And may we celebrate your goodness and grace to us. Remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ. If anyone in this room seeks to align themselves with your will and begin to serve, may they know right at this moment it's only because you first loved us, because you saved us, that we can do anything. Let no one in this room be compelled to try to earn anything from you, to try to make you a happy, merciful God. You have extended mercy to us in Jesus Christ. It's a finished work that we might respond just out of being faithful to what you've called us to, that we would be responding to how salvation has taken root in our hearts. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So be it, only the scriptures testify to this. May we believe those truths and live our lives appropriately in light of them, serving you, loving others, giving you all that we are and have. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Help yourselves.